0: Book, also known as the Book of Acts, we will be in Acts chapter twenty today. One of my favorite passages is Paul's letter to the Ephesian elders. One of my favorite passages in that whole book. I'm real excited to hear what our pastor and visionary leader Joe Yrostek has to say about it. All right, give it up for Jesus. Thank you, dear brother. What a wonderful time, all those formalities. I love it just so we can have a transition here from the back. But I receive the honor. Thank you, my brother, as I honor you as well. Uh, I don't think there's any more breaks until the end of school. Isn't that right, Pastor Jared? So we're going hard and to uh, the end of the year. So continue to read your Bible, do your studies, pray, seek the Lord, and you'll watch what he'll do in your life. He's been so faithful to me over the years. He will be faithful to you. And great job, worship team. We really appreciate you uh, being willing to be flexible and try new things with us. And uh, sometimes, you know, I may be a little bit weird, a little bit outdated, but I tell you what, I know how to find the glory hole. I'll find the glory hole. I'll find where the glory spouts at. Amen. And I just love taking those moments to do that. And we can do that not only in those soft moments, but we can also do it in the intense moments, as you've seen me at times with uh, Lawrence. And I say, get on the 808 and that warfare. And then we just start making those chants. And I remember one time when we were doing our team talk in the prayer time, it was so powerful, man. I just, in my heart, I knew God was with us as we were calling down uh, the nations, But it's your guys' turn as well, so keep experimenting, keep going hard. I want to give you permission to be weird for Jesus, amen. All right. Today in the Pentecostal handbook, we're going to read about Paul's travels in Greece and Asia. It's going to be the tail end of his uh, third missionary journey, going into the finality of it in chapter 21. We're going to learn today about some of his team members. They have some unique names. I've been trying to practice them on the way here. We'll see how I do. A funny story with a miracle. Some of you guys already know about that, but it's going to be fun for us to get there, and a strong warning against the false teachers that will come to Ephesus, which Pastor Jared was just sharing. Acts chapter 20, verse 1, he's in the the province here of uh, Asia and, and about ready to head towards Macedonia. So let's go in chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, that was in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people. That's because he's going back to where he had already been in his previous missionary journeys. And finally arrived in Greece. Some still to this day consider Greek culture, the Macedonian culture. They have a lot of similarities. Where he stayed there for three months. Because some of the Jews had plotted against him just as he was about ready to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. So it looked like uh, his plans were kind of changed as he heard about this plot. Once again, not being a he was willing to die, just like all the disciples were. And they did die, but they were trying to be wise and not continue to go into these riots where the message couldn't go out as, as well as if you went to other areas where they were more receptive. So he was accompanied by Sopater. Sopater. That's my best pronunciation of listening to this on the way here. Sopater, son of Pirhas from Berea. Articus, or Ar, oh, excuse me, R. Aristarchus, there we go. Aristarchus and Secundus. Secundus from Thessalonica. Gaius, everybody's just looking at me right now. I don't know if I believe you're doing these right, Pastor. Gaius from Derby. Timothy, also. Tychicus, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. Yay, pastor made it through. Even the Monday after Easter, praise the Lord. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Traos. So, uh, Traos, if you missed this here, the, ba- the basic idea is he's sending forth his team. But we, now you notice the we there. Who's the we uh, in this book right here? Who we know that is? Luke, the author, but we sailed for Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Treos, Treos, which way should we say that? Troas. Troas, how about none of the ways I was saying it, that's good, Troas, there we go, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week we came together to break bread, on what day of the week? The first day, what day did Jesus rise? The first day, this is church. This is now the new covenant way of meeting together, not on the Sabbath as the Jewish people did, but on the first day of the week. He would go on the Sabbath to the synagogue to reason with the Jews, but when he expected to meet with the Christians, when the tithes and offerings were brought, because that's what it also says in Corinth, as we learned, uh, in Corinthians, as we learned yesterday in our tithe and offering message. On the first day of the week, when you're gathered and all the finances are there, that's, that's the reference there as well, to the first day of the week. And, and we see here, the first day of the week, what it meant was this was the day they would celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And that's why it moved from Saturday to Sunday. So on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Anybody know a preacher like that? At least one or two? Okay, come on. Uh, There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Joby. No, I'm kidding. Was a young man named Eutychus. Oh, what did old Euty do here? Let's hear about him. He He was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Now, I don't know here if Luke intends us to laugh or what, but at least the American translators here make us want to laugh, right? Because it says on and on in English. We get that. I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I wouldn't know how that is in the original Greek, but this may, we, may be one of those moments where Luke, again, is making us laugh, uh, recognizing that Paul went on and on. It was a long night of preaching. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Everybody go, ah. Poor Udy, he fell asleep, fell out the window, boom, he's dead. But now watch this. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him and said, don't be alarmed. He said, he's all right. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again. And you're thinking, okay, it's you know it's time to go to bed and everything's over now. No, no, no. Then he goes upstairs, breaks bread, gets something to eat, and after talking until daylight, he left. He's like, no, we're just going to eat and keep on going and keep on preaching, the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted so i mean we're we're getting the travels here and then we get this story once again pentecostal handbook We see that we believe in miracles, but the thing that's even funnier about the Pentecostal handbook is we believe in preaching long messages. We love long church services. We love the kind that go to the break of dawn, okay? Uh, And and this time, this guy, he should have known better. He shouldn't have been on the windowsill, but poor guy, he fell asleep and he died. And now we have to ask ourselves, is this a myth? Is this just a story that they went around telling each other to, you know, make the church look cool? I don't think so. I mean, it doesn't make them look cool at all, really. It makes them look bad, like their people are dying because they're preaching too long. Poor guy, you know, you're going to feel sorry for them. You know, let's not forget that most cultures have all things in common. I mean, at any culture, at any generation, you're going to have certain things in common, okay? So it's, it may be hard sometimes to imagine, oh, what was it like 2,000 years ago? Well, let me tell you what was like. People got tired and they fell asleep. Okay? And if they fell down from a large distance, a high distance, they would get hurt. Okay? That's what it was like 2,000 years ago. And so this guy, sleepy as he was, fell down and got hurt. That doesn't make the church look good. And then the miracle there, uh, you know, now we have to almost prove it. So if you're going to make it a myth, well, let's not say it's anybody we know. Let's just say it was some guy. But it actually names his name, it names the place where they were at. This is an historical book that traveled around at that time. Legend and myth doesn't happen with actual people and actual places in the time of the people that it's supposed to be about. If you're going to write Greek myth, you're going to talk about Homer and the Odyssey. It's going to be with people you never would have known and places you never would have been in a time you were not alive. So they've done studies on this, and I just saw The Case for Christ. I know I'm a little behind on that, but it was a great movie to watch last night with the kids. Awesome movie. I had no idea that they put all of those facts in there, which is the best things to know when you're sharing about Jesus. If you can just memorize those, those are powerful. You can rock some people on that and help them see Jesus. But, uh, you know, one of the things that they were talking about is, is, um, is that myth well, then not in the movie, but I, in one of his talks and it's in the book as well, is that myth doesn't travel as fast as we think it does. On the internet, you know, somebody can put up, you know, like uh, a picture of Michael Jordan crying and it says, you know, like he just gambled away all of his money. You know, that was like a big thing like 10 years ago, if anybody remember, like he lost all of his money gambling. And it's like people were believing that, but no, it's just him crying from, from the time I think he lost his father at a funeral or something. You guys, you guys know I'm talking about, that crying picture. Well, that rumor starts fast, everybody believes it, but that 's not how things were in the in the ancient days they said it would take at least 20 to thirty to forty years for a legend to be developed and it would take that amount of time for people to hear it and pass it on and believe it and then they would have to you know have a motivation behind passing on a legend like that well this is in the actual time of the disciples and what benefit do you have in passing on a legend like that so it breaks all of the rules it breaks all of the rules it, the people are still alive it's in places you can go check, and there's zero motivation behind this, because if you're going to just say somebody raised from the dead, why don't you make it sound really awesome, you know? Like, uh, you know, we were preaching, and we were getting stoned, and then we got raised from the dead, or something like that, but this is a guy falling asleep. It, it To me, it's too odd to be fake. It, it, it has the criteria of embarrassment. It has the criteria of uh, being against the culture. It just, it to me, it, it meets all of the hallmarks of history. And so I believe that literally this happened. A man fell asleep. He fell down. The apostle, with the gift of raising the dead, the gift of healing, went and prayed for him, and God spared his life. Does it happen all the time? No. People died, and they didn't get raised. People were persecuted and got uh, killed. But this was one of those great miracles there. So I take that as fact. And what this should inspire us to do, to apply it to our lives, is if we ever have an itch, a situation that just happens. You know, you're at the gym, somebody keels over with a heart attack. Pray for them. Pray for them. Don't be afraid to pray for those in the situations. Uh, pray for people in the situations that they're in when you're there. So uh, another one of these stories is like Brother Anthony was telling me. He was out in... Um, the melphamine projects. They saw a shooting. It was a drive-by. The guy's laying there, bleeding out. They rush over and start praying for him. I mean, that's the art. That should be our first response. The one about the heart attack. I actually know the evangelist Joey Hip went and prayed for him. It was in his gym. It was in the locker room. Guy just keeled over, and he went right over to him and started praying for him. Um, I think both the people survived. I don't know if there was an instantaneous miracle, but it was the pattern of the believer to pray for the sick, to pray for the dead, to instantly try to do something in that moment and say, God, are you wanting to spare this person, you know, and we're going to believe God for that. Amen. Come on, somebody say amen. I'm going to believe God for miracles. You know, what's the worst thing that happens? The dead, dead person, you know, is not going to get offended you praying for him. Amen. But at least you tried, and at least you went and did it. And it looked like Paul actually had a word that God was going to raise him from the dead. And I've heard that God has given people words that it's not over for this person, and they stand on that word. Okay, so then we went on, sailed, uh, went on ahead to the ship, sailed to Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard, he had made this arrangement because he was going to go on foot, so Paul's going to walk somewhere, and they're going to uh, take the boat somewhere. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene, Mytilene, I think I got that one right. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived at Chios, because I think the C-H is a chi, Chios. Chios, I keep looking at Jared. How would you pronounce it? Same way like a, yeah, a The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Now, this is where we get our best idea to why this book was written, because uh, Paul's giving his defense to the Roman governor. So there's not a lot of exciting things right here, but it proves to us that this happened in history. I know I've I've been beating that drum for a while, but that is the best argument. If you want to know, like, Joe, what is the best argument somebody would say against our our Bible now? What is the best argument? What is Bart Ehrman saying? What, What are the smartest people, who some of them used to be Christians, who have turned to atheists and agnostics, what are they saying? They are saying Luke is a historian that adds myth into his writing. That's why I keep wanting to show you that the best arguments against our scriptures fall short. They are not true. This is actual history. He has no reason to add the myths that they say are there. They don't fit a pattern. There's no motivation behind them. And Luke is, is, is taking his time to go through the details of their travels. So if he's taking that time, why wouldn't he do the same for the miracles? And so if you trust that there's these places called Miletus and they're on the ships and they're going back and forth, and he actually says at one point he walks and we take the boat. I mean, just so insignificant of these facts, okay? You're going to find yourself sometime in ministry remembering these talks, and I promise you, you'll be like, I remember having the defense to this. Okay, so I always want you to know what's going on in scholarship around the world. But now we're going to see from Miletus, Paul sets sail. Uh, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders. Rather, he doesn't sail there. In Miletus, he calls the elders to himself from Ephesus. What's unique here is that you're going to see is that the two terms that we were taught before about the leadership of the church are actually going to be interchanged here. He calls for the elders, which is the group. Greek word presbyterios, and then later on down here when he talks about their work in the ministry, he's going to say that they are overseers. The, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, which is the Greek word episkopos, which is where we get the word bishop. So bishop and elder are interchangeable, and then we'll see that he even makes the reference to what the bishops and elders do is the work of shepherding, which is the Greek word peone or pionene, or pioneno, or something like that. Um, my, my wife was here. She would help us. Maybe uh, Jared will pronounce it for us correctly. But I wanted you to see that that that's how pastors began to be known as the main leaders of the church is because they started uh, uh, dropping the elder and de uh, elder and uh, bishop title and just going with pastor. But it was never meant to be that way. It was elders and deacons excuse me, elders and bishops, do the work of pastors. So when we're in charge as elders and bishops, which is like the same position, the head ones, and the deacons are the servants, okay, when we are in charge, oh, and an interchangeable word with deacon would be minister. Minister is used quite a bit, uh, and it's a different, um, um, not deviation, but uh, what's the word I'm looking for? D, yeah, I believe it is. Just check on that. The word minister is a uh, variation, variation, of the word derivative. May have been the word I was looking for with the D, but uh, variation was actually where I feel more comfortable now. So, like presbytery, uh, presbyter, uh, bishops, uh, bishop. Those—that's the plural and singular. They are interchangeable. Speaking about the one that's in charge. Um, Oh, an elder and presbyter are the same thing. So, okay, let me back up. Here we go again. Elder. And presbyter are just the same way of saying the exact same Greek word of presbyterios, which I know is confusing, right? But that's sometimes how translators do it. What would be really simple is if the translator just always translated the word elder, presbyter. That would just be super simple because don't you already see it there in the Greek? Right there, presbyterios. Word presbyter, don't you see it? That'd be super simple, but because of translations and different reasons, sometimes people put the word elder there. Sometimes people put the word presbytery there, presbyter there. It's it's the exact same word in the Greek. Now this other word here, um, episkopos, is um, also the word bishop and overseer. So you have two English words, bishop and overseer, that episkopos is translated to, just like there's two English words that presbyteros is translated to, elder and overseer. Y'all get that? So now you learned four different titles, elder, presbyter, overseer, bishop, right? You guys get that? Exact same title. I am all four of those things in this church. Jared is all four of those things. And then what uniquely happened is uh, Peter as well says this, that the elders pastor, the elders shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5. Don't let me forget to come to you because last time I forgot to come to you. Um, they say elders, shepherd, and here Paul says elders, shepherd, and that's where the tradition came to call the elders shepherds, call them pastors. Does everybody get that? Because shepherd and pastor are the same English word for this Greek word. It's almost like every Greek word has two English words. Does everybody get that? Okay. What are the two English words for the Greek word presbyteros? Joe. Joe. Elder and presbyterian, presbyter, presbyter, great. What are the two English words for the Greek word episkopos? Bishop and overseer, bishop and overseer. And what are the two Greek words for, uh, the two English words for the Greek word piomino? Shepherd and pastor, thank you. Okay, write those down so you don't forget it, right? Now, what is the Greek word for minister? Diakonos, so it actually is the same exact Greek word, and then it gets translated sometimes minister and sometimes deacon, right? I would have to do more research, and, and, and don't let me forget, I'll do that more of a word study after this to see if minister is ever a different word than decanos, because it may be at different times. So then Decanos would have two English words for it. Why am I saying all of this? Because I want you to understand why it's still okay to call me a pastor because that was a tradition of the church. But more specifically, what am I? I'm an elder. I'm an overseer. I'm a bishop. I'm a presbyter. Does everybody get that? So he calls for those guys. That, by the way, that's what you're going to school for. You guys are going to school to become overseers. You're going to school to become presbyters. You are going to school to become these people. Then in the fivefold ministry, you will do your different gifts. But all of us, all of us, We'll pastor God's people. All of us will shepherd them. It doesn't matter if you're an evangelist, whatever, you're going to shepherd them. And then all of us are going to evangelize. Everybody must do the work of of an evangelist. That is written to Timothy, who's in the office of an elder overseeing the Ephesians church, and he's their pastor, and he's told to do the work of an evangelist. So everybody is always required to shepherd God's people. Everybody's required to do evangelism. And then guess what? Because of the Great Commission, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you in Matthew 28, everybody is going to teach. So everybody that is called to the ministry to be an elder or a deacon is going to do those three things. The other two, being an apostle, starting a church, and prophetic, hearing the voice of God for the congregation, may not be for everybody. But those are three out of the five that we know every elder and deacon will do. There's no way around it. That is the tradition of the church. Amen? Amen. So he calls for the elders of the church of Ephesus. When they arrive, he said to them, now here's his testimony, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Now right here people would say, if you say you're humble, you're not humble. That's not true. Moses was the most meekest man upon the earth. And guess who wrote that Mo- Moses was the most meekest man upon the earth? Moses did. Moses wrote that in the Pentateuch, that he was the meekest man among the, uh, on the earth because God told him he was the meekest man on the earth, and he believed it. Humility is believing what God says about you is true. And if God says you're humble, you believe that you're humble. If God says that you're prideful, you believe that you're prideful. What is pride? Believing something other than what God says about you. Okay, so those are the real definitions of humility and pride. It's not bashfulness, like, oh, no, I'm not that good of a singer. No, you know, no, it's not that. It is really knowing who you are in your identity. And so pride isn't being confident. Pride and confidence get confused all the time. By that definition, Paul would be prideful. The disciples would be prideful. Everybody would be prideful in the Bible, right? that's, That's not the definition of pride. Humility is not being people's doormat. Humility is knowing who you are in Christ and living life like it And proud, being proud, is being someone other than God called you to be. So He says, "You know that I was with you in great humility. I was who God wanted me to be. I was with you in tears. I was severely tested by the Jewish, my Jewish opponents." He says in verse twenty, "You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house." So here we see that Paul was willing to say all of the things of the Bible. Isn't that amazing? Paul wasn't just trying to say the nice things of the Bible. He had to say the tough things. He had to say the things that were of correction, were of rebuking. But he also said the encouraging things. So he said, whatever was of your benefit that would be helpful, I told it to you. And then here you see his testimony. I did it in public, and I did it house to house. That's why we are following that same example, our home Bible studies, our evangelism in the neighborhood and in the church and everywhere that we can be. We're going to do it both publicly and privately. We're never going to shy away from it. So we should be able to read those passages out of Ezekiel that I've used as as an example about the donkeys and all that. We should be able to say that before our president. We should be able to say that in a library. We should be able to say that on a college campus in the context of what it was made for, not to be shocking. You know, when I was, um, you know, putting out that message on those prophetic passages and how sometimes the Bible can be harsh, that niceness is not always Christ-likeness, I had a choice. What I could have done is just cut out the snippet, put it with some money, with advertising, because we always advertise our sermons, you know, so it comes up on your feed as sponsored. And I could say, you know, look at this pastor, get up in your face, you won't believe what he says, you know. Something for clickbait, you know, but I didn't. I just put the whole sermon up, didn't even mention that there was a sassy part in there. And some of my friends who listened to it, like Brandon Hold and others, you know, they text me and they're like, whoa, man, that was a good sermon. I got a lot out of it. But I didn't sensationalize it. Why? Because that's not the purpose of it. We're not here to try to be controversial for controversial sake or to get attention, but the idea is our words will cause controversy, but we're not ashamed of our words. We're not ashamed of the sexual definition <clears throat> excuse me of sexuality in the Bible and how God defines family and those things. We're not ashamed of the passages of judgment. Some people are. They, they feel like they have to sweep them under the rug. I'm not ashamed of the, the book of Acts and Ananias and Sapphira dying, dying. I could be on any show. I won't blush. I am I'm, I'm there representing God. And even in a day, you know, uh, with science and all of these things where people think it's on the side of evolution all that, I'm not ashamed to believe in a young or a six-day creation. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I'm just thinking maybe after the book of Ephesians, take a break before we go into another book and maybe just talk about worldview, you know, just a lot of things that are interesting that you see me hit on a lot in my sermons, you know, about the, uh, the logical end of atheism, where it ends is, is nihilism, you know, how I brought that up yesterday in the Easter message because I can hear the sass, you know, as we're testifying about cancer, I can hear somebody going, well, Jesus gave them cancer in the first place, you know, things like that. Or talking about science, like, are we science deniers? Are are we flat earthers, you know, and all these things? No, we're not science deniers at all. We just have a different worldview. So take, for example, when I'm watching a show that's uh, on fishing and they're catching alligator gar, and they say alligator gar are uh, peers to the dinosaurs who lived 100 million years ago. When me and my family start laughing at them, that's not because we deny science. We're just like, that is foolish. For you to think that this thing has survived 100 million years and dinosaurs didn't, you know, in the sense of that uh, it has a... a different kind of lifestyle than a dinosaur is absolutely foolish. Dinosaurs not only lived among them, but dinosaurs lived among every other kind of animal. And so they just pick out these prehistoric animals, and they go, well, yeah, we have to admit still, quote, unquote, dinosaurs are alive today. Like, like if you're going to consider a dinosaur, I know dinosaur has like a certain definition, but if you're going to consider it an ancient animal that lived 100 million years ago, there's a lot of dinosaurs that are alive right now. Sharks are dinosaurs. Alligators are dinosaurs. The platypus is a dinosaur. You know, and it's like if you're going to try to get us to think, like, that means they were alive 100 million years ago because somehow they survived in dinosaurs. That's just absolutely redonkulous. If an asteroid hit the planet, why in the world are dinosaurs the strongest, biggest things dying, and these guys are not, you know? And and then some people say, well, because they needed more resources. They just make up all of these stories. Or you could just simply say this. Certain kinds of animals have died over time, and certain kinds are still alive. Where does the scientific evidence point? That dinosaurs lived 100 million years ago, or that some animals died 6,000 or 5,000 years ago, and some lived, right? So instead of saying these were like peers with dinosaurs, like, wow, this is something amazing. No, just say, this is an animal that has outlived a dinosaur. That's all it did. It's just outlived a dinosaur. There's a lot of animals that out- All the animals today outlive dinosaurs. Well, why did the dinosaurs die? Well, why do any animal die? Why are today some of the strongest animals always the ones targeted? It's because those are the ones that have the most resources. You kill a T-Rex, you get to eat a lot of meat off a T-Rex. And it wouldn't be hard to kill a T-Rex. Everybody's like, oh, this would be so hard to kill a T-Rex. No, it wouldn't. You dig a big ditch. You put a top over it that makes it look like you can run over that thing. And then you put a cow on top of it. and And it falls right in it. You kill it. That's how you kill a T-Rex. And then you find where its nest is. You find where it's laying its little lizard eggs. And then you take its little lizard eggs, and now no more big T-Rexes live. And if you kill one of those big vegetarian things, like we had to tell people, stop killing elephants. Why? Because you can eat a lot of food from an elephant, right? So those big, you know, uh, land-dwelling dinosaurs that ate vegetables, what would you do? you just kill the thing. That's what they did. And why do you think people did that? Because after you're kicked out of the garden, you see these things running around. What are you going to do? You're going to kill them. You understand what I'm saying? You're going to kill them. They're not going to survive very long. They're, they're, they're too big. They're, they're The lizards can have a capacity to keep growing and growing and growing. Now, uh, some people say that they survived the flood. Yes, they survived the flood. But they didn't live long after the flood. They probably were a lot more populous until the flood. And then when he took them on the ark with him, He took babies. He took little ones. That's how you fit a lot of animals in a big boat, right? You take the little ones. You don't take the biggest T-Rex you can find because the biggest one is going to be the hardest one to feed and get along with others. You take the little one. Take the little T-Rex. That's this big. And if God could bring the two T-Rex to the ark and could spare the whole world, you know, I mean spare, uh, you know, uh, Noah as the whole world is drawn, he can give the ability for these animals to survive their 40 days there. So they feed them, you know, they're like little, little pets. Well, then when they go off, You're not going to let them live very long. As humans see them starting to get big, they're going to start killing them. They're not going to have the opportunities that they had. That's why we see a lot of them buried, right? But then here's the thing. Here's the thing. Why is it we still find them with blood tissue? You tell me blood tissue lasts 100 million years? We find entire intact, uh, what do they call these things? Woolly mammoths, you know, woolly mammoths, intact. Well, they say because they were frozen, they can survive 100 million years. They have had planes crash in, uh, I believe it's the Antarctic during World War II, that got covered by the amount of snow that the woolly mammoths got covered, and they say it took 100 million years. Those planes got covered in that in the last 50 years. Because the climate can change, and a lot of snow can come at once, and then it can melt and push it down as it's going down and make you think it's buried so far deep. That's why it is what it is. You know, and then people say, well, they have carbon dating, and then they date the rocks. Well, they date the rocks by the carbon dating, and they do carbon dating by the rocks. It's a circular argument. They're basically punching in the numbers that they want to see come out at the end because there are things that always disprove their carbon dating, like modern-day volcanoes and modern-day coal as we find it being developed. It doesn't take millions and millions of years. And so the idea is we're not skeptical of science. We just believe in real science, amen? Now, how in the world did I get here? Oh, because talking publicly and from house to house. So if I'm going to go defend, you know, here's my thing, you know. If I'm being brought before Oprah and they have some expert on there, I'm going to say I'm not an expert in that. But I know people who are you know, let's call them up. Let me phone a friend in here. And then I'm going to call like Dr. Jason Lyle, you know, or Dr. Humphreys or different people who have their degree in astrophysics or biology and so forth. And I'm going to say, now you guys can argue about it. But here's primarily the reason why I'm young earth, because I believe in the Bible. If Jesus raised in three days, the earth was created in three, uh, six days. Okay, as surely as those numbers are right, I uh, the surely as the three days is right, the six days is right. And I trust the Bible and the world supports this uh, idea of The human civilizations, how quickly, for them, there has to be uh, a Cambrian explosion of all these different uh, vertebrae animals growing and, and, and rapidly expanding. And then there has to be an intelligent explosion, uh, explosion among mankind where evolution, even in their time frame, doesn't work because all of a sudden there seems like there's a whole lot of, uh, I would say, intelligent animals and intelligent people all around the same exact time. And we don't have any evidence. We see Neanderthals, but we have no evidence that they were any different than normal human beings because everything thing we see upon this world that has lasted the time is all intelligent. The, the, the pyramids and all of these things. Well, they may say, well, they were unintelligent that's why it hasn't lasted. But we don't find large civilizations of half monkey, half uh, a man people, right? We don't find what we would call like an ape-like ancestor in between us. The, that, that's what Darwin wanted to find was that missing link. You hear about that. Darwin thought we would find these large society of missing links because that's the only way you could get large societies of, of intelligent humans, as, as they would say, Right? So it just happened to be by chance. It exploded and there was a lot of intelligent humans all of a sudden. But that's just ridiculous. God created us intelligent. As a matter of fact, we didn't get uh, smarter. We got dumber over time. And we haven't lived longer. We've lived shorter. Now there's been a little dip, you know, as we faced the plagues and all of that. But Adam lived almost for a thousand years. These people were geniuses. They were mathematical geniuses. To to this day, we haven't been able to figure out exactly how they made the pyramids or Stonehenge and places like that and how they understood astronomy they were they were brilliant and understanding math and the things that they could create and so they, it wasn't like you know man was some stupid caveman that's that's a myth man was always intelligent that's why we know man could conquer and kill all these types of animals because he always has been like if you think of right now just this don't even take my word for it let's pretend what I just said wasn't even true look at people on the African plains right now are they afraid of elephants or are elephants afraid of them the elephants are afraid of them because they can kill them all they want. And they had to tell them, stop killing these elephants. And they can be out there just with spears and whatever, and they'll just kill all the, they'll kill all the lions, they'll kill all the elephants. And that, that's not supposed to happen. Why? Because they're intelligent. We're smarter than animals. Amen. We figure it out. Well, here's the lion. Lion lays down over here. When it attacks, it does this. Okay, about 40 of us get spears. Can't kill us all. Rush towards it. Then we take the cubs. We kill the cubs. Now these lions here, this pride of lions is done. We do it again. It only takes a few thousand villagers to figure out how to wipe out the entire population of all the lions around them. Right, the only reason why there's lions alive is because they let them live. They let them live in Africa. They respected them, but then they were killing them too much, you know. And we wanted them to have larger numbers, but uh, we wiped out tons of animal uh, of species, you know, saber-tooth tiger and different things. We, you know, just different people groups wiped them out. It doesn't take a lot to do. How long did it take us? (laughs) I'm all on this right now. I know it's like your favorite thing you wanted. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, How long did it take us to to wipe out whales once we built ships big enough to withstand the ocean? We almost just wiped out all the whales. Look how big a whale is. Have you seen the comparison of whales to ships? Like in those days, I mean, you'll see like a little ship, it's like this big, and the whale's like this big or something. You know, they were killing the things that were this big because they figured out how they migrated, they figured out how they lived, and then they they would shoot out a harpoon, you know, this huge metal hook like thing, boom, right into it, and then they would let it pull their boat until it bled out and died. So just you know hold on the, the 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 whales taking us all over the ocean that was it you know and they killed killed all the things you know and they are still sea creatures and they are still dinosaurs we just call them by different names now that's what i was saying it's something funny when you, you the 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 alligator gar is not a dinosaur why not cuz those died 100 million years ago so what is it oh we're just going to call it a gar Well, by your own definition, it's pretty much a a dinosaur. It's like, what's what's an alligator? Well, it's an alligator, but it's live with the dinosaurs. Does it look like a dinosaur? Yeah, it looks pretty much like the dinosaurs of that time. Hung out with the dinosaurs, but is it a dinosaur? No, it's something different. Do you get how foolish that is? And then they want to say dinosaurs turned into birds. See, that's unscientific. And then they want to say that we're the make-believe ones. Don't fall for that nonsense. Okay, So publicly and from house to house He said I have declared both to Jews and Greeks That they must turn to God in repentance And have faith in our Lord Jesus You see this is why it's not the Roman Catholic handbook This is why it's not the seventh day Adventist Or the black Hebrew Israelite supposedly handbook No, this is the gospel of faith handbook Turn to God in repentance and have faith That's how you're saved, amen Praise God and now compelled by the Spirit. See, the person of the Spirit, If force doesn't compel you. The Spirit, the person of the Spirit compelled him. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me. Doesn't it warn you? Doesn't it warn you? Doesn't it talk to you? Doesn't it get grieved? Doesn't it speak and guide you? No, this is a person. The Holy Spirit warns me. That, the, that prison and hardship are facing me. So he knew everywhere he would go, he could possibly die. However, I consider my life uh, worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news, other words, the gospel of God's grace. See, was he there to baptize in Jesus' name only, get them all to speak in tongues? No, he said, I don't even know how many I baptized when he recounts in Corinth, what they were arguing over baptism. Is he here to institute the Jewish law, get them all circumcised? He said, no, my job in the race that I want to finish, what I started, what I want to finish by God's grace, is to testify of the gospel of God's grace. And you can see about him talking about that in 2 Timothy 4.7, because remember, Timothy was in Ephesus. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. He loved talking about the kingdom because the gospel is all about the kingdom. Everybody get this. The gospel is a means to an end. It's not the end. Discipleship is a means to an end. We will always be be the disciples of Christ. We'll always be grateful for the gospel. Don't get me wrong. We'll always be learning the mysteries of it, but it's a means to an end, and the end is judgment and the kingdom being established upon the earth. So you won't always be preaching the gospel to lost people. You won't always be making disciples out of immature believers. At one at, at one point, the Bible will be fulfilled. Everyone will know God, because God will be in the heart. The laws will be written among them, and we'll be face-to-face with Him. Okay, So these are the means to the end, but that's how uh, Paul saw his ministry was, I'm preaching, I'm building the kingdom, but that's going to be to the end of my race. When my race is done, I'm done doing that in that way. Does everybody get it? Because I know sometimes we just we we almost worship worship. We almost think the 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 you know the preaching that these kinds of things is is what eternity is all about. No, it's it's based on that, but it's going to be about being with Him, right? Like I'm when I'm in the restored Garden of Eden, the New Jerusalem, I'm not going to have to tell you to repent of your sins. I'm not gonna remind you of the grace of God. Now I'll be talking about the grace of God, but you guys get the difference. I won't be asking you accountability questions, you know. Like, have you been looking at one of them seraphim over there? You've been stumbling, you know. Like, no, you know, I you know, I see this siren thing coming out this like, gross, perverse, like, uh, mermaid show coming out, you know? It's like, now they want to make disgusting, attractive in some ways, and it's, oh, come on now. You know what I'm talking about, where the villain is scary, but yet she's kind of hot, and it's like, oh, what's going on here, you know? It's it's like that idea of sinfulness, you know? It's this wickedness. It's like, no, like, this thing is terrifying. Oh, and I'm attracted to it. That That's weird. You're not going to be asked that question, okay? Maybe I shouldn't even have brought that up, okay? But you're not going to be thinking about perverted things, you know? and And by the way... And the reason why I bring these kinds of things up is because there's a movie that just won, what, the Oscar, and it was about a woman falling in love basically with a sea monster. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, but the the bottom line is it's bestiality, bestiality, Okay. Therefore, I declare to you that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. He had also said that in Acts 18:6. He got that from Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. The idea that as a Christian, he knew he would be held accountable for what he did with the gospel. So yes, there's the judgment day of heaven and hell, you know, New Jerusalem, whether you get to stay or you get sent to the lake of fire. But there's also a judgment for Christians, and there will be a day of shame. There'll be a day of reckoning for people who didn't do what they were supposed to. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And as you read Paul's letters, you get the whole will of God. The whole will of God is that mankind might be saved, become the children of God, be restored in the kingdom, and live forever with him on the earth. That's the whole will of God. And God wants you to live holy because he is holy. And God wants you to love as he loves and all of those wonderful things. Now, here comes the tough part. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's where we get the word there, episkopos. Be shepherds, piomeneo. Uh, of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Okay? So now we see you are supposed to do these things. 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 through 5, Peter said the same thing to the people he was over. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. See, he had an understanding prophetically that they would be ransacked by false prophets and false teachers. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember for that. That for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears, and guess what? At the end of the book of Ephesians, he says the same thing: grace and peace to lo- to those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. That was his. That was his final uh, command to them: to love Jesus with an undying love. But by And that was around uh, 60 A.D. This is right around 58 A.D. The book of Revelation is written around 90 A.D. Thirty years later, Jesus is giving the evaluation of the church of Ephesus. And he says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven uh, golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people so morally they were good people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. So they have done well to fight against these false." False apostles. They were doing well even though they were ravaging them and have found them to be false. But he says, yet uh, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. You have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. So put it all together, Paul warns them that they're coming, and at the, at the end of Ephesians, he says, and remember, don't forget to, you know, to always love God, and probably his, his uh, teaching on spiritual warfare was specifically against false teaching, that the enemy was going to use that, so you had to stand your faith, right? Now that makes a lot of sense about the application here. He, he's telling them, this is how you fight against these savage wolves, and they did. They did awesome. They stood against this onslaught of false teaching. Many of them did. But they forgot their first love in the, in the midst of it. Isn't that sad? Many of them were, were being, you know, deceived and leaving them. And all of that was happening, yes. But there was a group that stayed true. But in the midst of that, they lost their first love. They forgot why they were doing it. They, they became just legalistic about it, I guess. And they just were coming to church to come to church and putting down the false teaching to put it down. But they weren't remembering that that wasn't why they became Christians. It wasn't just a fight, uh, fight false doctrine. It was to be in love with Jesus, and I see that a lot of times with apologetic people, they fight against false doctrine and they lose their kindness and their compassion towards their brothers and sisters, and they lose their first love for Jesus. So we got to remind, remember to be humble. He said, "Now I commit." you to God and to the word of his grace so that God can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Isn't that amazing? He believed in total sanctification. You're sanctified now and you have an inheritance. Ten fourteen of Hebrews says that God is perfected once and for all by that one sacrifice of Jesus. And here he says, I'm giving you over to God and to the word of his grace so he knew God could keep them. And he says, you have an inheritance. You see how he's kingdom minded? That's why I don't say lightly discipleship and gospel preaching is an end, a means to an end. It's just the kingdom is the end. The kingdom, you know, the gospel of the kingdom. But the kingdom is the final thing we're all in. Discipling them for the kingdom. But it's the kingdom. Does everybody get that? It's about the kingdom to come. I have not coveted anyone's gold, uh, anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. So we talked about that in Second, Thess- <laughs> Second Thessalonians. Chapter three, seven through ten. There's a little bit of the after party from Easter coming out right here. It was a long day yesterday. I was tired. No excuses, though. Help me, Jesus. Thessalonians. Why it was so hard to say, Thessalonians. That's how I feel like I'm saying it. Thessalonians. Thessalonians. I don't even know how to say it without the Th. Thessalonians. That's how I'm going to say it now. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. I can't even stop this. Pause this live feed. Second Thessalonians. Thessalonians. It's like I want to skip the theft right now. Second Thessalonians. I don't even know what to do. Second Thessalonians. There we go. Second Thessalonians. Okay, I'm moving on. In everything I did, I showed you that despite, by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of our Lord Jesus that said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Real quick. Paul worked with his own hands. Many of you will have to do that to supply your own need. Never look, bad on, uh, never look down on yourself. Never think that's bad. My wife and I had to do it. That's part of ministry. Paul did his whole life that way. And he taught that if a person doesn't work, they shouldn't eat. So he always believed in hand ups, uh, hands, hands up, not hands out. Okay? And then here it says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. But where do we find that in the Bible? Like where did Jesus say that? One of two options we have here. This is an oral tradition that didn't come into the New Testament, because we know that Jesus spoke way more things than are actually in our Bible. If a man spoke uh, just as a normal word, uh, a man like 10,000 words a day, there's only like 30,000, 40,000 words of Jesus in the Bible. A normal man within two or three days would say the amount of words you have of Jesus in the Bible. So what was he doing all those other three years? He wasn't talking about aliens. He wasn't talking about the Nephilim. But what he was doing was repeating himself and saying things in different way. And so what people might kind of make a correlation is that Luke 6:38, given it will be given to you and all that might have been said by another time of him uh, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive because he was repeating himself as a traveling preacher and just like I have a lot of one liners and I change them up all the time he might have been changing it up that's number one option number two is that was direct revelation Just as uh, Paul is getting Theanistos, god breeds scripture, to write down these things, Jesus might have told him this and said, this is another thing I want you to know. So I lean towards the first thing because this is something that he says everybody knows. So this was probably an oral tradition of Jesus. And if there is any weight behind some of the other gospels, especially the gospel of Thomas, there may be other sayings of Jesus that we didn't know. That's a truth. That's a truth fact. But they're not going to f- support the sect that they come from. So Gnostics tr- try to make that their way to get you to believe that they had the, the hidden teachings of Jesus. And even if you took the Gospel of Thomas, which would be the the only one I would consider, could even make a play for that. There's nothing controversial in there. It's it's just it's just leaning toward Gnostic beliefs the way he talks about the world and everything. And I don't have time to get into all of that. But uh, I do believe this was an oral teaching of Jesus. And somebody might ask a very good question. What if we find a book that hasn't been published in the Bible? What would we do? And it really sounds like it's Jesus, and it's, and it's just like this, and it comes on golden tablets. No, I'm kidding. But um, that's the Book of Mormon. But let, let's say we do find that, and we date it to 2,000 years ago. We wouldn't consider it Scripture, but we would consider historical uh, data. That's what we would do, because I would believe, based on a presuppositional belief that God gave us the Scriptures that we needed for the last 2,000 years. So if any of these things had been lost, like there's possibly a third Corinthians. We know there's other letters. There's a letter to uh, Laodicea that Paul wrote and other things like that that he mentions. If we found one of those, cool. We're just not going to add it into the Bible. We're going to treat it as history at this point. But uh, once again, uh, for it to teach something false, that 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 would be a whole other discussion. I have no, uh, I, have, I believe we have all the true teachings, and I don't have a fear of us finding something that's not true. I don't have any fear. Amen? Uh, I, I was just trying to think of a, a way to say that I don't have any concern about that happening because here's here's the reason, because we have church fathers, and if you took the first like I think it's 300 years of church uh, Christian history and church writing, you could put together almost 90 percent, 90 to 98 percent of the entire New Testament just from their quotes. So I mean, you know. They would have had it. They would have known it. And so uh, sometimes the Roman Catholics try to squeeze in some of their false beliefs in that, but no, 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 we're not going to believe that because you have nothing to prove it with. You could say this is something they believed, but no, they never said it. It's never written down. You're just making stuff up. I could say something else too. You know, we can make it up. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again, And then they accompanied him to the ship. So we're getting right towards the end of the third journey right here. Paul is right here at Miletus. And then um, next chapter, chapter 21, we'll hear about him sailing into um, the Jerusalem area right there. And on the timeline, and I know I'm a little late, I apologize. And on the timeline, we're right here, right before uh, 59, uh, somewhere right around 57, 57 area, right before he gets imprisoned. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word that encourages us. Uh, Today we learned a lot. God, help us to remember to continue to preach, pray, plug away as Paul did to finish our race and to be faithful even in the times of testing, to never lose our first love, to always love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give it up.